A reading from the word of the Lord, book of Revelation, chapters 10 and 11. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. He was robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head. His face was like the sun and his legs were like fiery pillars. He was holding a little scroll which lay open in his hand. He planted his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and he gave a loud shout like the roar of a lion. When he shouted, the voices of the seven thunders spoke. And when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven say, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. Then the angel I had been that had been standing on the sea and on the land, raised his right hand to heaven, and he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and all that is in them, the earth and all that is in it, and the sea and all that is in it, and said, there will be no more delay. But in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished, just as he announced to his servants the prophets." Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me once more. Go, take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and I asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth, But when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. Then I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar with its worshipers. But exclude the outer court. Do not measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months And I will appoint my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. They are the two olive trees and the two lampstands, and they stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. They have power to shut up the heavens so it will not rain during the time they are prophesying. They have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Now, when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the public square of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom in Egypt where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. But after the three and a half days... The breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. 
At that very hour, there was a severe earthquake, and a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. The third woe is coming soon. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your people who revere your name, both great and small, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and within his temple was seen the ark of his covenant. And there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and a severe hailstorm. The word of the Lord. I read of a pastor who uh, was praying for his brothers that his brothers would look at God and consider his ways. He prayed, and he prayed to no avail. Until one day, he got a call that one of his brothers had been bitten by a rattlesnake. And finally, the family asked the pastor to come and pray with his brothers. When he arrived, he went right to it, right to prayer. Oh, Father, wise and righteous we thank thee for sending a rattlesnake to bite Sam. And now, Father, would you send another rattlesnake to bite Jim? And another to bite John? And Father, would you send a big rattlesnake to bite their old man? So, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and send you snakes. What does it take to get a person to look at God and consider his ways? From our text today, the answer is two words. Judgment and witness. Judgment and witness. When we last left the book of Revelation, we were in chapter 8, verse 1. There was the seventh seal was opening. You remember that Jesus, the slaughtered lamb on the throne, was the one who is able to open the scroll and tell us how the world will end. All of recorded history under his control, his kingship. And as he breaks the seventh seal, we, we understand in heaven that there was a 30-minute time of silence. We think what John was doing there was reflecting a Talmudic uh, uh, Jewish uh, tr tradition where it said the angels pray at night, 
but are quiet in the day so that during the day God can hear his saints pray. And the saints were praying, how long, O Lord? And they were praying, come, may up there, come down here. It's the prayer of the saints in every age. And as they were praying, the incense was rising to the Lord and it moves. Remember, prayer is reverse thunder. We don't always see it here on the earth, but in heaven, it thunders when we pray. And the angel takes a coal from the incense fire and throws it on the earth. That is the seventh seal, and now the scroll is opened, and we enter another cycle of judgments that are called the trumpet judgments. Now, the trumpet in Old Testament time was used for several different purposes. Uh, it was often used as a wake-up kind of reveille call, when, especially in the wilderness. Israel was camping on their way to the promised land. This would get everyone up and let them know that we're moving. Uh, trumpets were also used in the presence of royalty to announce you to bow in the presence of a king. But the main reason why trumpets were used in everyday practical life as well as in religious life in uh, Israel was as a warning sound, an alarm. It was used much in the prophets uh, to talk about the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is coming, and everyone must prepare to meet the Lord. Trumpets would sound to remind us that we are entering, approaching the day of the Lord. And so we have this series of trumpet judgments that we now enter beginning in Revelation uh, verse 6 and 7. We believe, as were the seal judgments when we looked last week as a view of history from the church, that the world is shot through with history. In the end, who will stand? Well, the church will stand because they are sealed by the Spirit and they are bold in prayer. That was last week with the seal judgments. This week is the trumpet judgments, and we kind of look at our history. This time between Christ's first coming and his second coming is described by these trumpet judgments. And and this is a perspective of what the world sees in this age. And there are four trumpet judgments that describe nature. And then there are five and six, the trumpets, that describe the human race. So let's walk through them. We'll put them on the screen. I won't take the time to read them. You can read them. Let me just summarize that the first four trumpet judgments that sound the alarms of warning for this age, this history in which we live, are around nature, what we might call natural disasters. You see, there is, because we live in a fallen world, this propensity uh, in the natural world towards violence. Hailstorms, thunderstorms, tornadoes, hurricanes, tsunamis, brooding dark skies, blood red skies, flooding rivers. All of these affect, it says, a third of the ships, which means they hit the economy. All of these things describe this time in which we live, but it will get progressively worse as we near the return of Jesus Christ. So that's what's happening, these natural disasters in our world. And then trumpets five and six have to do with what we might call uh, human violence, human disasters. That is war and conquest. Now we talked about this last week. It's here again. What describes this age in which we live? War and conflict. So in trumpet five, uh, it says that uh, Satan is handed the keys 
to the abyss. We believe the abyss is talking about Hades or hell there. And it's interesting that Satan is given the keys so that he can unlock it and uh, a mass of locusts come out. More on those in a minute. But then they uh, permeate throughout the world and incite human beings toward violence. Now I think it's interesting to reflect on this theologically for a minute in that Satan is handed the key, we think, from Jesus. Understand this about our world, our reality, that Satan and Jesus are not equal forces here. We do not live in a Star Wars kind of theology where darkness and light are fighting it out on equal footing and we hope that you know, light wins. No, notice the key is given to Satan. The devil has power. The devil has influence. The devil has tools only insofar as they are given to him by Jesus. As Luther said, even the devil is God's devil. And one of the great mysteries of reality of Christian, Christianity is that even the devil and all of his evil and all of his influence is under the purview, the management structure of the almighty God. And he uses even the things that the devil is trying to do in his secret plans. Even the devil is God's devil. But he takes the key from Jesus and he loosens the depths of the abyss and out come these locusts. Now understand in the ancient world, the locust was the closest insect to a horse. In fact, the German word and the Italian word for locust is little horse. I don't know. I don't see it. But anyhow, there's been a number of different interpretations about what these locusts are. And so uh, let me just share a couple of them with you. If you are reading Revelation, each of us has to kind of choose a frame how we're going to read Revelation. Uh, what does it mean? So there are those who think that everything in the book of Revelation after chapter 5 in the great worship scene, everything from 6 through 20 happened in the past. It happened... Uh, and was fulfilled by 70 AD with the destruction of the Jerusalem temple. So there are many godly and smart people who read Revelation and think it's already happened. The only thing that hasn't is chapter 21 and 22, and we're still waiting for Jesus to come back and set up the new heavens and the new earth. They're called preterists. And preterists believe that uh, these locusts, what was referred to there was an actual incident when Jewish transvestites entered the city of Jerusalem in 167 BC under the despot Syrian ruler Antiochus Epiphanes who slaughtered a pig on the altar in the temple. Jewish transvestites. It was actually soldiers who wore wigs to, to think they were women, they had men's faces and sharp spears like lion teeth. You didn't expect to hear that one, did you? There are futurists who think that everything in Revelation after chapter 5 will happen at the very end of the age in the great tribulation that happens, you know, some think it's a literal seven-year period, some think it's just things get progressively worse, and there's this period of great tribulation at the end. And all of the events from chapter 6 in the vision through uh, chapter 19 uh, and 20 happen in the future. 
And so uh, a, a, a futurist like Hal Lindsey, who was well known in the 20th century uh, for his books, one called The Late Great Planet Earth. And he thought the locusts were Cobra helicopters during the Vietnam War with nerve gas in the tail. See, that's the challenge of being a futurist in that you have to update your symbolic equivalents about every 30 years. Now, again, I'm not... Who knows what these things mean? Uh, here's, here's the point I, I want to make. Whether you are a preterist and think it's already happened, whether you are a futurist and think it's already in the future, whether you're like the, the approach I'm seeing in that I think this means what it meant to the first century Christian and, and continues to mean throughout the church age and that things, these trumpet judgments do describe our, our existence now and it's going to get worse and worse. Here's my point. Here's what we all agree on. There are godly and smart people who are preterists, who are futurists, who are idealists. Here's what we agree on. And here's why we stay unified. What we agree on is no matter how you frame the book of Revelation, what we do know from all the teaching in the New Testament is Jesus is coming back again. And the second coming could happen at any time. The clear teaching of the New Testament is this. Get right or get left. That's clear. We agree on that. That's where we stand. So no matter what view you take of the book of Revelation, what's clear is the second coming. Jesus is coming back again, and as he himself said, we had better keep our lamps trimmed as we walk through this darkness. So the the seven trumpets, the first four are about creation. The the fifth one is about human violence in the form of these locusts and incite people to kill each other. The, The sixth trumpet talks about 200 million soldiers in an army that come as four angels that are chained together at the bottom of the Euphrates River. Whoa, I, again, I'm not sure. Here's what I think that means. The greatest fear of the Roman government was a confederation of 10 tribes to the east of the Euphrates River called the Parthians. And the greatest fear of being a Roman citizen was invasion by a stronger army. They lived in fear that their country would be invaded. And so what you have here in the the human existence of our time is natural disasters that happen and human incidents of violence and invasion that we fear. Now, it's not hard for us to imagine this. We have experienced this. In fact, I'm going to look at a moment of two months in the year 1999 when we heard trumpet sounds in our existence here. May 3rd, 1999, in Bridgemore, Oklahoma, there was a series of 40 twisters that hit the ground over a 20-hour period. One of them, the largest one, stayed on the ground. Now, when a a twister usually touches ground, it stays for a few minutes. This one stayed on the ground for 20 hours. It was recorded as having a speed of 318 miles per hour, the largest recorded wind surface ever, surface wind. 
A Time Magazine journalist described this twister as having demonic perseverance. The trumpets sound. A month earlier, in April, April 20th, 1999. Well, let's just say all of us who've lived here since that time know what happened on April 20th, 1999. We heard trumpets sound. It was the Columbine Massacre. A Times Magazine journalist described All eyes fell on the killers and the questions that we can neither avoid nor answer, the talk show rituals of absolution, blame the culture, the parents, the guns, the video games, left too much unresolved for those inclined to declare that the boys were simply deeply wicked. But for those with an eye toward larger battles, the killers were not themselves evil, they were instruments of it. The dark force we met in Narnia and try not to think about once we grow up until the day that we had no choice. We hear trumpets sound during this church age between Christ's first coming and his second coming. Natural disasters, human beings killing each other, all under the influence of evil. Now, What do these mean? What do these trumpet alarms mean? I would suggest to you they mean two things. As warning of judgment warnings, warnings of judgment, they mean two things. First, they are severe glory. They are screaming out, look at God. Let me explain. When you read those first four trumpets, your mind, if you've been in the church and read some, the Old Testament a while, you go back to the plagues of Egypt, right? Hailstorms, blood, uh, uh, locusts. I mean, all of the t- plagues of Egypt are wrapped into those first four trumpets. You think about the plagues of Egypt. So why did God send the plagues on Egypt? Well, you know, on the surface, to get Israel out of Egypt, to make... Pharaoh, you know, change his mind and say, okay, you can go and, and take everyone with you. But what happened during that plague cycle? Well, there'd be one plague, God would send the plague, Pharaoh would ponder, oh, okay, maybe you can go. And then the text specifically said, and this is the great mystery, the Lord hardened the Pharaoh's heart and he wouldn't let the people go. Why? So that he could send the next plague. Pharaoh's thinking about it. The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And he wouldn't let the people go. Why? So he could send the next plague. What's going on here? What's going on here is that every single plague took down an Egyptian god. Everyone. Everyone poked at a security symbol that Egypt was holding on to, worshiping the sun, worshiping nature, worshiping frog, whatever it is, it's the true God saying, you trust that, do you? I'm bigger and I'm better. He even gets to the last plague. And Pharaoh says, okay, I've had enough, go. And remember what happens, Israel starts going, they're at the edge of the Red Sea. 
the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he sends the Egyptian army after them again. Why? So that he could perform the greatest miracle on the face of the planet. The parting of the Red Sea and 600,000 people crossing it on dry ground. Believe it if you will. Severe glory. Who's biggest? Who's strongest? Who is most powerful? We hear trumpets sound to hear God say, look at me. And he's kicking away our crutches. Where does your security come from? What are you holding on in this life to give you a sense of security and meaning and purpose? Some of us hold on to our looks. We think as long as, you know, I look good and people like looking at me, then I matter. Uh, I got sorry. I'm not the son of a prophet or a prophet, but here's what I do know. Wrinkles, wrinkles are not far. That's what I know. You're losing your grip on that. I know some of us hold on to a relationship and we think, oh, as long as I have apocalyptic romance in my life or as long as I have that person who meets my needs, you're holding on. That's your sense of security. That's your dream of security. I tell you what, if you love another person that way, expecting them to meet your needs, you're going to kill them and you'll be divorced soon. And even if you are in a strong, good, happy marriage right now, enjoy it while you have it because you can't ultimately hold on to it. Some of us look to our work. Some of us look to our money and our standard of living. What is it that you're holding on to that's giving you a sense of security? God is kicking away your crutches. That's the point of hearing trumpet sounds. What are you holding on to to give you security? You know, the question is not, is religion a crutch? Of course it's a crutch. What's true is that everyone has a crutch. And the only question is, is your crutch strong enough to hold you up on the worst day of your life? That's the question. So I see these trumpet sounds as God kicking away people's crutches. And he's saying, look at me. Come on. There's nowhere else that you can find security. I think the other reason for these trumpets is for us to remember that with God there's severe mercy. You know the key to interpreting that chapter 8 where all those plagues are described is the repeated word phrase, one-third, 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 one-third. It's eight times. When something's repeated, you probably should listen to that. One-third. What does that mean? One-third of the sea, one-third of the, the land, one-third of the ships, all that. It means that though people die in natural disasters, everyone does not die in natural disasters. It's fractional mercy. Now, I don't think it's literal at all, but we know that people die. But here's what the text tells us. It's one-third. It's not two-thirds. And do you know what? It's not three-thirds. God would be fully righteous and just 
if he did not give every person on the planet whom he has made and owns another breath. He would be righteous and holy and just if none of us lived to take another breath. Why? Because the wages of sin is death. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. And we deserve nothing concerning a future. And it's only by God's mercy that all of us aren't killed by the next natural disaster. One-third. One time, Jesus' pastors came up to him, and they asked him a hard question. They said, Jesus, you know that Pilate, who was a despot, a, a vicious ruler during Jesus' time, Pilate was killing Jews to keep them under his thumb, and he even mixed the martyr's blood of these Jews with the evening sacrifices in their temple. Man, that is despicable. Jesus, what do you think of that? Jesus, as he was prone, didn't answer their question, but he asked them a question. He said, hey, you read the papers yesterday. You heard about that tower, and this is in Luke chapter 13. You read about that tower in Siloam, right? It fell randomly, killed 18 people. Were those 18 people more guilty, more sinful than any other people? Jesus answered, no. And then Here's what Jesus said. But unless you repent, you too will perish. That's the hard part of the Bible, folks, of God's word. God doesn't give us the answer to the why question. Why do towers fall and kill 18 people? Why do windstorms come through Oklahoma and kill people? Why do teenagers kill teenagers in this age? Why? We don't get the answer to the why question. We get the answer to the what question. What should we do? We should repent because you too are dying. It's not a question of if, it's a question of, a question of when, it's a question of you will die. Severe glory and severe mercy. But here's the response of the world to the trumpets. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, idols that cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. I guess praying for snake bites is not the way to go. Even though we hear trumpet sounds all around us in the violence of creation, in the violence of the human race, they in and of themselves, they cause questioning, they cause doubt, they cause despair, but they in and of themselves do not cause the human heart to look at God or consider his ways. There is more that is needed. What specifically? God sends in the witnesses. 
That's chapters 10 and 11 that Elsa read. The witnesses. God sends in witnesses to preach the word, and he sends in witnesses to practice resurrection. Let me unpack that. In, in chapter 10, we're given this first vision. There's two visions. The first is of eating a scroll, and the second is of uh, two witnesses. And so John is now asked to become part of the vision and become a player in it. And this mighty angel, we don't know who the mighty angel is, but he brings this scroll. And he says to John, eat it. It will taste sweet to you. But when it comes out, it's going to be bitter in your stomach. What's going on here? Simply this. Well, not simply. But here's what I think the text is saying. That in order for us to be an effective witness, that is to give defense testimony for Jesus Christ who is on trial in our world, we're called in as character witnesses. To be an effective witness, we first have to have the word in us. Right? We know this leadership principle. In order to lead people somewhere, you need to be walking it yourself. In order to be able to give the word to somebody, you have to have it in you already. That's the symbol of eating it, getting it, ingesting it so that it's part of your life. Why? So first of all, you can be a verbal witness for Jesus Christ when he calls upon you. See, here's my theory. I think God gets this thing in the church in this age and he makes us the power grid for receiving the word of God. And then he's looking around for people, maybe people who've heard trumpet sounds and they're looking up and they have questions. And God says, well, I want you to go talk to this Christian. And he plugs them into the power grid. And hopefully this Christian has the word in them. I'm amazed as I've read the Bible over the years. I try to do it every day. It's a spiritual discipline. It's hard work. It takes effort. But you try to read it. And what's, what's amazing is you have read a passage of Scripture and later that week, God brings someone into my path and, uh, and they'll ask a question. I'll say, oh, I was just reading about that. Does that happen to you? It's amazing. You're the grid. And God's plugging people into the grid all the time. Our responsibility is to keep charged ourselves and have the power ready for when someone asked us about the word of God. So Waterstone, very practically, are you getting the word in you? Read the Bible every day. Some of us, you know, are very list and habit people. We need to have the habit. And so you read your chapters every day. Uh, others of us are, are struggle with habit. But, you know, I would remind you that even being at church on a regular basis, that's how the early church had devotions and quiet time. You just being here, you're getting the word in you. Way to go. Be in church, be listening to the word, read the word. We have so many opportunities, all the apps that are available. Let me recommend one quickly that's on our website. It's called thebibleproject.com. Check it out. It's a yearly Bible reading program. It has these cool videos that describe what you're reading. And it's one that we've used often at Waterstone to get the word in us, thebibleproject.com. But whatever you're doing, even if it's just a couple of verses a day, Whatever, get the word in you so that God can pull it out. Be part of the power grid. But the second thing this means is not only do we get the word in us so that we can give a verbal witness, we get the word in us so that we can give a lifestyle witness. Here's what happens. The word of God gets in us and it begins to mess with all the parts of our lives. It begins to mess with our sexuality. It begins to mess with the way we use money. It begins to mess with the way we view work and power. It begins to mess with the way we view politics. All of that. The word of God comes in. God starts healing things, challenging things, fixing things in our inside. And before you know it, we look rather interesting to the world around us. 
Some might even say stunning. Let me explain. Do you know we found a copy, uh, not Waterstone, but the church found a copy of a a letter that was written around 200 AD. It was written by a a man named uh, Diognetus, and he was discipling. This is a letter discipleship relationship. They were writing letters back and forth, and a guy named Mathenes. And he has this amazing line, and it's a long letter, but this line just jumps out the page to show how stunning the early church was. He says, we share our table with all, but we do not share our bed with all. What does that mean? That means the early church was promiscuous with their money, but not promiscuous with their bed. The pagan world is stingy with their money and not stingy with their body. Do you see how a Christian would have been stunning in the empire? How their whole life became a witness to make them stand out. Now often the pushback on that was severe and that's why this word's sweet to us but can be bitter pushback. But the point is that the way we use our money, the way we use our bodies, is us witnessing to the culture, and that witness is stunning to the world around us. Now, I need to just say this as a pastor who loves you, but some of you in this room, with your sexuality, you're living together. You're having sex outside of marriage. I plead with you. To stop that and change that. I plead with you, first because it's doing damage to your soul. The reason God gave us sex was to be used in a marriage such that every time a married couple has sex, they become one flesh again and they're recommitting their marriage vows. That's why sex is absolutely awesome. It's because it's two people recommitting their marriage vows to each other. If you're using sex for anything outside of God's owner's manual, you're hurting your soul and you are not stunning. You need to be stunning for Jesus and stand out in your culture. The same is true with our money. How many of us in this room are actually willing to raise your hand and say, I'm giving all the money I could to God? his church, the missions, and the poor. We can always do better, and we live in that tension, and that tension is good. I always like to say, the more tension you have around your money and how much you're giving, the better off you are. Let it eat you up. Because in the times in which we live, man, oh man, we are going to have some questions to answer for Jesus about how we use our money. You see, the way we use our money and how, much, how generous we are with it, we should be absolutely stunning in our culture by how we use our money. So you get the point. When trumpets sound and people are wondering what's going on, it's the Christians who show up in their witness and say, Jesus is stunning. You should check him out. The second thing, and the last thing, is in chapter 11. This other vision of the two witnesses. Let me get deep in the weeds here for just a moment. What in the world's going on in chapter 11? You may have been wondering when uh, Elsa's reading that. I think best pass at this is it talks about giving John a measuring rod. He's still participating in the parable. And he measures the temple. The thing is, the temple was gone in 70 AD. There's no temple. And the early church was taught that the church is the temple. So it seems that John's being asked to examine the church. 
and that the church would be uh, attacked by the outer court, the Gentiles, under Gentile rule, under this period of oppression in which we live. For 42 months, it says. Now, 42 months, that's an interesting number. It always seems to be used throughout Scripture to describe a time when God's people were struggling or suffering or under attack. 42 months was the number of stops that Israel made on their way to the promised land from Egypt. 42 generations was the number of generations that Matthew says from Abraham to Jesus. 42 months is the time that um, Elijah preached that there'd be no rain and he called all the nations to repentance. There's other places where this three and a half year period, it always seems that's when God was going to test his people. That's when he was going to call them to stand up and be witnesses even though times around them were hard. In fact, well, and then it talks about the two olive trees and the two lampstands. That's from Zechariah 4. I know you've heard a verse before if you've been around the church for any time. There's a verse, Zechariah 4, 6, that says, Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And so there's two witnesses, and why two to represent the whole church? Here's my best guess at that. We learned last fall that there were seven churches, five of them were actually under discipline. Jesus accused them of being compromising and conflicted with their faith. Two of them, ironically, the two that were suffering the most, were the strongest witnesses, and Jesus had no confrontation to them. So it seems that this suffering church is the great witness for God's people in difficult times. Mm. Let me say that again. It seems that the suffering church is the great witness to Jesus for God's people during times of suffering. Now, they operate in the spirit and power of Moses and Elijah, and uh, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit. But notice what happened to the witnesses in chapter 11. They got killed. They lie on the streets of Jerusalem for three and a half days, and then the Spirit comes upon them, and with language lifted, word for word, from Ezekiel 37, John says the Spirit, uh, and Ezekiel 37 is when the Spirit of God takes Ezekiel to look out over a valley, and in the vision, the valley's filled with dry bones. And then God says, Elijah, preach. I mean, Ezekiel preach. Ezekiel preaches, and the dry bones, the spirit goes over them, they come to life. What's happening here? Well, the suffering church, they may even lose their life. They may even be put on the streets for three and a half days. But what happens? The spirit comes back over them, and they rise again. You see, the last word pronounced on any Christian who loses their life for God is resurrection. Resurrection. That's the last word. That makes a person dangerous. A person who's practicing resurrection in this life is a dangerous person. My job as a pastor is to help you die a good death. You are right with God. You are right with people. You are ready to go home. You are walking now in your future glory self. That's my job as a pastor, to help you die a good death. With some of you, I get to engage that very personally. 
Several years ago, one of my best friends here, Bill Wilking, passed away two and a half years ago. He was diagnosed with colon cancer at the age of 50 and died at 53. I had that incredible journey of walking him to his death. Bill would, we'd meet, he'd dictate letters that he wanted me to write down and I'd write them down. These were letters to be opened by his children on their wedding day and significant markers of uh, his children's life. It was an incredible honor. But one day, we were sitting in his back patio, sipping lemonade. Bill says, Larry, look at this. Passed me this piece of paper, and on a list was 12 names. I said, what's this, Bill? He said, these are 12 people, most of them former work associates, some of them family, with whom I'm good friends, but I haven't yet shared Jesus with them. And Bill said, now that I'm dying, now that I'm a dead man, I've got nothing to lose, and I'm going to share Jesus with them. And week by week, as he neared the end of his journey, we checked those names off. He had called each one and met for coffee, met for lunch, and he shared what was the most important relationship in his life with those 12 people. The day it was all done, he passed me the list. We had a toast, and we cheered. And then Bill, his body dying, but his eyes still sharp, looked in my eyes, and he said, Larry, How's your list coming? Mm-hmm. I'm a dying man too. It was that moment that I realized that even though I'm a pastor and I love you to death, I'm spending all of my time with you and that's wrong. It led me to go join a board of a nonprofit in Jefferson County where I am every time together with secular, needing people who need Jesus. And I've got my list. You see, when a man or a woman knows that they're dying, they make time count. A man or a woman who knows that even though they die, they live again, well, they're downright dangerous. The trumpets sound in this age, natural disasters, human violence, people still won't look to God. So God sends in the witnesses, witnesses like you and I. We are much less boring than tracks and apology presentations. We're real life witnesses to who Jesus is. And he sends us to people to preach the word, and to practice resurrection. Let's pray. Father, we did notice that as you described the witnesses, that they were dressed in sackcloth. Sackcloth is the symbol in the Bible for repentance. Luther said that the Christian life from beginning to end is repentance. Repentance means to look over all the parts of our lives and see where we're misaligned. See what needs tweaked. See what needs upgraded so that we can be stunning and dangerous. So in this moment of quiet, 
Would you now examine your life? Ask God to show you where you need to repent so that you can be more stunning and dangerous.